Welcome to Public Policy This Week, a well-rounded weekly discussion of policy issues that frame today's American experience. Good morning. It is Friday, October 13th, and you've joined us for Public Policy This Week here on 95.1 FM and AM 1080 KYMN Radio. Public Policy This Week is dedicated to the honest and open discussion of public policy issues. Each week, we take a look at specific policy subjects, and we have guests on the show who are experts in their field. I'm Rich Larson, one of your hosts for this morning's show. The man sitting across from me is my co-host this week, Nathan Leaf. Today, we are going to discuss a topic that has quietly become a full-on crisis in Minnesota and across the country, long-term care. Facing inflationary problems, funding issues, and a suffocating labor shortage, nursing homes and skilled nursing facilities are closing their doors around the country at an alarming rate. Right here in Northfield, just in the past few weeks, Northfield Hospital and Clinics announced that it would close its long-term care facility, and Three Links Care Center has entered into a merger with St. Francis Health Systems. Joining us today to help us make sense of the issue and hash all of this out, is Natasha Mertz, the Assistant Commissioner of the Aging and Disability Services of the Minnesota Department of Human Services. In her role as Assistant Commissioner, Mertz oversees programs and policies that serve people with disabilities and older adults. Prior to her appointment early this year, uh, Assistant Commissioner Mertz helped create the Aging and Disability Services Administration and served as Interim Assistant Commissioner. Since joining the Human Services Department in 2007, she has also been a Regional Resource Specialist and Manager for the Disability Services Division, eventually leading the division as its Director. She previously spent 10 years in the Office of the Ombudsman for Long-Term Care as a Regional as a regional ombudsman and as deputy ombudsman, providing advocacy and dispute resolution services to nursing home residents and people who live in assistant living settings. She began her career as an attorney, practicing elder law and teaching at the University of St. Thomas Legal Services Clinic. She is a graduate of Creighton University with bachelor's degrees in political science and Spanish and a co-major in justice and peace studies. She received her law degree from the University of St. Thomas School of Law. Assistant Commissioner Natasha Mertz, welcome to Public Policy this week, and thank you so much for being a part of this show today. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me, and good morning. Good morning. I, I, have, I have two quick questions for you. First of all, are, are we pronouncing your, your, your last name properly? Is it Mertz or Mertz? No T. It's just MERS. MERS. Okay. All right. I will. And secondly, uh, Assistant Commissioner MERS is is a little bit of a, a mouthful. Do you mind if we call you Natasha? I don't mind at all. I prefer that. Wonderful. Thank you so much. Okay. Um, we always like to ask our our, our guests uh, where we're talking to when we when we have them on remotely. Where are we talking to you from? I I am coming to you from my uh, home office in Robbinsdale, Minnesota. Fantastic. Wonderful. I used to live in New Hope. I like Robinsdale oh, very nice. much. Yeah. All right. Uh, okay. We've got a lot to cover this morning, so we should probably get started. Uh, Natasha, could you first just tell us a little bit about the uh, the Aging and Disability Services de- uh, Department? It sounds like it hadn't been around all that long, and you uh, evidently were one of the architects of the department. So would you mind telling us a little bit about it? Yeah, yeah. I'd be happy to. Um, so the Aging and Disability Services Administration is one of uh, several administrations in the Department of Human Services. And it is true that having disability services and aging is, uh, we were kind of reorged into that configuration uh, just over a year ago. But we have in previous iterations across DHS also spent time with our, between aging and disability services. So I wouldn't say that it's a, a totally new configuration for the department. I think we're always in an agency um, as big as DHS, always looking for kind of what are the optimal ways that we can organize and align our work. Um, But certainly there is, while there are really meaningful differences in the needs and wants of aging folks versus people with disabilities, there's also a lot of uh, crossover in areas for alignment. So it's a really, I think, a nice way to align some of our systems and programs that use similar federal authorities. And I can get into more detail on that if that's interesting, but that's kind of the gist of aging and adult services. So just to give you a sense of the program areas, um, we have the what are called Medicaid waivers that uh, support people that would otherwise need to live in an institution, live in the community. Um, The personal care assistance program, which is a very large program to support people with um, that need help with activities of daily living. 
We also have information and referral uh, services, the Disability Hub and the Senior Linkage Line, and I can uh, share a little bit more about those valuable tools, too, later in the interview, um, as well as nursing facility rates and policies. So kind of how do we set rates to pay nursing facilities uh, using Medicaid dollars? What, what does that look like? And so that's a, a big policy area of ours as well, as well as um, services that support older adults under the Older Americans Act. Um, so that's kind of a rough a rough outline of, of who we are and the types of work that we do. No, uh, no, no shortage of responsibilities then. Yeah, it's yeah. a big scope, but it's, yeah. uh, it's wonderful, dynamic, and, and very engaging. Natasha, what would you identify as the major overall challenges to long-term care, both across the country and here in the state of Minnesota? Sure. So I think you, you hinted at this in your intro, which is really the, um, the workforce is a very significant and serious concern about across the spectrum for long-term care services and supports, whether we're talking about staffing in nursing facilities or assisted living, home care agencies that provide services to people in their home or, um, you know, residential settings for people with disabilities. It has been um, a long-growing problem where we haven't had enough direct support professionals to, to, to fill the gaps and meet the needs of, of people that use services, but certainly we've seen those workforce pressures exacerbated by COVID um, and, you know, the direct support workforce is always subject like many others to the, to the economy. And when we tend to have lower employment rate, unemployment rates, we tend to see a tighter contraction in the direct support professional labor market. So I think, you know, the, the reason that that's the, some of the, the biggest challenge is really because that has the most impact on people's day-to-day -day life. If you can't find someone to help you with the things you need to do to be a part of your community or go about your day, I mean, that is a very serious and significant issue across, like I said, the, the, the span of people that need support. And what are the key factors that contribute to the health and safety of residents in long-term care facilities? Yeah, I mean, there, it's, that's a, a really good question with a lot of, you know, the answer is, is complicated, but I think I can highlight some major themes. So one is, of course, that they have the, the proper training in both the overall, you know, safety protocols and health protecting protocols in whatever setting they're working in, right? So providing support to someone that's in a licensed nursing facility is going to come with different rules, regulations, and training requirements than if you're providing support for someone in their home. So, but the what, what both of those share in common in terms of um, providing high quality care is that that staff is trained and has the information and is equipped to deliver services in the way that's consistent with obviously the regulations, but what tends to be more important and, to, well, equally as important in having a good experience really is the, the relationship between the direct support professional and the person being supported or the person using services. What we really look for in, in high quality care is sort of that baseline I talked about, that that person is trained and understands the, the basic health and safety requirements of their job. But what we really see in terms of quality outcomes is when the person, the direct support professional, really knows the individual they're supporting as a person, knows what's important to them, not just what's important for their health and safety, but knows kind of what are the things they like to do, what makes them happy, how do they like to have services delivered, and then makes an effort to deliver services in that way. And that leads to a, a power dynamic that is more equalized, right? Sometimes we see in lower quality healthcare outcomes that the power dynamic between the staff and the person being supported is imbalanced and that the staff has a lot more power. And so when we look and see high quality outcomes, again, we see that, that relationship, that professional relationship of mutual respect of that direct support professional really knowing and caring about the person and then them being able to communicate about what's working or not working, you know, in how that particular care was delivered or how that particular interaction went. Um, so really, Looking at the quality of the relationship makes a big difference in terms of quality outcomes, regardless of what type of regulatory setting the person is living in. Natasha, the um, the idea for this show, um, we've been working on on, on, on this for a while. Uh, there have been uh, people in, in Northfield who have uh, been talking about the uh, the fact that there's a, a real problem with long-term care with nursing homes and uh, uh, we actually put the show together before uh, Northfield Hospital and Clinics announced that they were going to close their 
uh, uh, long-term care facility before Three Links uh, uh, Care Center here in town announced that they're uh, they were going to have to uh, move into a merger with another health system. And there's a rumor that we're going to lose another uh, long-term care facility here in town. Can you give us a sense? Do you know how many long-term care facilities have closed in Minnesota or have announced their intentions to shut down this year? Yeah, so I have that data for 2023. And certainly if you're looking for more of a overall trend line, we yes. can we could provide that to you as a follow-up. But about six nursing facilities have closed in Minnesota in calendar year 23. Um, and we are aware of one that may be looking at a closure in 24. What I will say is that it's not unusual for nursing homes to to close or consolidate, that there's always been that in our system. Mm -hmm. So the fact that one or two are particular closing is, you know, you have to look at that in the context of the overall trends in the industry. But it's absolutely true that because of workforce, COVID pressures, it is becoming increasingly difficult. Um, providing nursing facility level of care is highly regulated and it's it's a, you know, it's a difficult job to perform. I will say that one of the things we think about is that nursing homes are not the only way that people want to receive long-term care. Um, more commonly, people prefer to receive home and supports in their, in their homes, if that's possible for them, or in assisted living. So nursing homes play a really important part of our system, but they're not the only way that people receive support um, as they're aging and, and kind of going along that aging journey. So maybe the, the, the alarm bells that a lot of us are hearing maybe aren't quite as loud as, as, uh, uh, as, as we think they are? Well, I don't know that I want to say that because I know that when, when facilities close, it, it has a huge impact on, on the community in which that facility is located. And so I don't want to say that, you know, you shouldn't be worried or everything right. is, is fine because I think that's probably not being sensitive to the particular needs and desires of the Northfield community. I think what I'll say is that closures and consolidations have always occurred, you know, in the nursing mm -hmm. facility industry, Sorry, turn my camera off, and others. Um, I think, you know, looking, it's important to look at that in the context of the overall sort of what's our, what's our steady state of closures and consolidations, nursing facilities, whether they're for-profit or non-profit, are businesses that choose to, you know, engage in different types of business transactions. What we're concerned about in the department is that people have access to nursing facility services in or around their communities. So one of our most important initiatives um, that was a part of the governor's budget in the 2023 legislative session was increased funding for critical access nursing facilities. So those are facilities that have special designation because they are the only nursing facility in a certain uh, geographical zone. And so we want to make sure that those facilities have you know, the funding they need to stay open and stay available, because again, we don't want someone to have to drive across the state to go to rehab um, or to get nursing facility care, either short-term or long-term. I would like to talk about Medicare and Medicaid as they relate to long-term care facilities. Understanding, of course, that this is incredibly complicated. Uh, there are thousands of pages written about regulations and procedures when it comes to long-term care and entitlements. But can you please give us a broad view of how Medicare and Medicaid work into long-term care? Yeah, yeah, I can, I can definitely give you the the ten thousand foot version, mm. and you're you're absolutely right that it is it is complicated. Medicaid and Medicare do a lot of different things in a lot of different programs, but fundamentally, I think it's helpful to start at what the difference between Medicare and Medicaid is. So Medicare is a insur a health insurance program for people sixty five and older. And some people that have been uh, determined by the Social Security Administration to have a disability status. But I think, you know, that distinction is, is important, but primarily in terms of who Medicare serves and what Medicare does overall, it really is that 65 and older health, uh, health insurance function. Medicaid, on the other hand, is a, a means-tested program, which means it's for people that... Um, don't have a certain level of, of income or assets. So it's a poverty, you know, you have to sort of prove that you don't make too much money to qualify for Medicaid. Medicaid can then function in a wide variety of capacities for people with, again, I mentioned all those different types of services and programs. So in the context of long-term care, Medicaid um, can pay for nursing facility care 
after Medicare, after Medicare coverage is ended. So maybe I'll just say a little bit about that. Medicare, you know, I said operates primarily as a health insurance program, uh, paying for prescription drugs, clinic visits, prevention, right? All the stuff that all, all of us need relative to healthcare. It will have, it has a limited benefit set for paying uh, for a person to live in a nursing home during perhaps, for example, a rehab stay. So maybe someone has a fall and has a fracture and needs to be in a transitional care unit and get intensive rehab after they've healed up. Medicare will cover that up to a certain number of days. After that, there is a cost-sharing provision. But fundamentally, the important distinction to know is Medicare does not pay for long-term care. It pays for the kind of short-term um, medical care rehab. And so Medicare is not going to pay for your for the nursing home, for example, forever. It'll pay for that certain benefit set, that, that limited period of time. After that, if the person meets the eligibility requirements, Medicaid can pay for nursing facility care. Um, it also, and however, also really important to understand that Medicaid will pay for services and supports in the community. So there are different programs within Medicaid that, again, pay for people to pay for direct support professionals and other services to be delivered so that people don't have to live in a nursing home or other institutions so they can live in their homes or live in the community. So there are programs called waivers, um, which are different programs that are kind of based on populations right now that pay for those long-term services and supports. So a Medicaid waiver for a person that's 65 and older could potentially pay for them to live in an assisted living if that provider accepts Medicaid as a payer source. It could also pay a home care agency to come in and provide, um, you know, help with daily activities. So when I talk about activities of daily living, I'm talking about the stuff that you and I do every day to get, you know, to get up to eating, bathing, grooming, getting ourselves dressed, you know, getting, getting out of bed and into our chair or, you know, whatever that might look like. So a lot of those support programs are available under Medicaid. So I guess I'll pause there and see if that made any sense or if we, you want to ask a, a different question. Because it's, you know, it's, it's, a big, it's a big topic. It gets complex really quick. No, that, that yeah. answered it. Um, our long-term care system has been in place for decades and has evolved to meet the times. But now fundamental pieces of the system have become major problems. Um, uh, you touched a little bit on this, but I was wondering if you could give us some more specifics. Why is staffing a long-term care facility so much more difficult today than it was, say, 10 or 20 years ago? Yeah, I mean, there are a couple, there are a few major factors that probably won't come as a, a surprise to your audience. Um, you know, fundamentally, these are really important, complex, and challenging jobs that are paid at entry-level wages, right? So I think if you were you were to talk to workers and talk to their employers, they would say fundamentally what's really hard is that they are competing with other um, other sectors of our economy that have a lot more flexibility to um, increase revenue so that they can pay better wages. So if you think about work, the, the direct support professional market is competing with retail, with uh, food service. And so it's really challenging because say in the private sector in like the food service or the retail sector, if inflation and costs go up, they can increase prices and increase revenue and then pay higher wages. Whereas in the Medicaid world, the, those, those rates are set basically by the legislature in conjunction with the, with the state of Minnesota, with the department of human services and without legislative authorization, we can't increase rates. And so um, that means that we have to wait, that those industries have to wait until the legislature authorizes that increase in order to get a rate that allows them to pay a different wage. So I would say kind of at a super high level, they have, they're always competing with the private market, but they don't have the same level of uh, elasticity in their ability to you know, raise wages quickly. So that's one big factor. Um, you know, obviously the second is that we do have shifting demographics in our society that our population is aging and there aren't as many people coming into the workforce at all, but also not as many people coming into the, the long-term care profession. And that really is something that we need to focus on and change. Um, and then the third factor that I would, I would sort of point out is I think we don't, as a society, value the, the work of these professions in the way that we really ought to in terms of 
the backbone of support that they're providing to society, allowing other people that have disabilities or our, our elders to live active lives in the community and engage. Like those are big wins for all of us in our in our communities. And we need to really think about how we value our direct support professionals in, in a different way, um, in a way that really recognizes what they're contributing is fundamentally, you know, different than maybe some other sectors where they could make a couple dollars more an hour, but they, you know, the folks that are in this community of providers are really dedicated to providing good support and are there because they know it makes a difference, even if the rest of society, they're not maybe getting the message that it is. And I think that fundamentally changing that perception, changing that attitude would really go a long way, even while we know that that wages and benefits are certainly the top issue in terms of retention of direct support professionals. Right. So you you talked about people not coming into the profession, and that's uh, probably will lead into my next question. But uh, there have been a, a, a certain percentage of the people have left the profession, uh, like specifically do worked in long term care, and do not want to work in long term care anymore. Does does the state have any sense about why that's happening? You know. I don't know that we have a sense in terms of a, a statement that general. Um, I think it is it is highly individualized. Mm-hmm. I think we're seeing the same in long-term care, the same or similar issues as other industries post-COVID, where workers are in just sort of a fundamentally different space in terms of what they want and what they're willing to do for for what level of pay. I also think that remote work has, you know, is an option now for, for many of us that it wasn't before. And that's also that flexibility might be, you know, sort of pulling workers into different parts of the economy because they have that flexibility that they need um, in a remote work environment, which is, of course, not generally not possible in the direct support professional environment unless, you know, you're working with a company or an entity that's using, you know, technology to support people, which is certainly a possibility, but it's not the most common way to deliver service. It's typically delivered kind of in that one-to-one live, you know, person-to-person interaction. Sure, sure. Okay, so I mean, and and COVID, I think, sort of is related to all of this. Let's talk a little bit about COVID-19. Um, there were obviously, there were issues with long-term care before COVID-19 came along. Um, but but how were those problems exacerbated by, by COVID-19? And what new issues uh, arose um, during the pandemic? And, and, and what are the lessons that we've learned uh, from the COVID-19 pandemic? Yeah, yeah, those are also really, really good questions. Um, So I think, you know, in terms of what what has been present since COVID, you know, I don't want to sort of belabor the the nursing facility or the, the staffing issues, but I think that that's been a huge deal. You know, one of the things that we've learned that maybe wasn't as prevalent before COVID was really thinking about the health, the pros and cons from a public health perspective of living in congregate environments, right, where people are coming together and they're having, you know, 20, 30, 40, 50 people eat in the same place where we have, a, you know, a lot of oppor- more opportunities than we would in sort of scattered site housing for for infections to develop and thinking about that calculus as it relates to you know, a person's safety. So, you know, I'll share that people in my life that um, I love very much went pre-COVID into a really nice assisted living facility because that's like where they felt they were mm-hmm. they were at at the time, but decided to move back to their home after the COVID outbreak and really having to weigh that, that risk-benefit analysis, you know, and in the early days of COVID, you know, we didn't have vaccines. We didn't know um, exactly what the what the right treatments were. Healthcare capacity was very low, and so I feel like, you know, they made a really rational choice and decision. And I think as we, you know, as COVID moves into an endemic, um, but we also are going to see, you know, Fulton flu season and the impact of that. I think people are looking differently at congregate care as a long term care option and trying to figure out. And I think that's added a new a new factor to the decisions people make about whether they stay in their communities or whether they stay in their homes or whether they move into those congregate settings where they might have more access to care, less isolation. Um, but there are different types of risks in terms of um, infection and, and other risks associated with that. So I think that was one thing that was you know present before COVID, but very much a factor 
post-COVID. Um, and then I think staffing, of course, has always impacts mm-hmm. people's experience in, in that care setting. And so that continues to be something that um, factors into people's decisions. Was there anything else that 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 uh, that COVID did to the to the to the long term care system? I mean, where are, I'm generally curious about this because I don't know. Is it uh, did the the supply chain issues uh, shock the the system? Was it, I have to believe inflation that that, that has uh, worked alongside COVID um, has has hurt long term care as well. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And what I want to say is, you know, COVID had it a had a incredibly negative impact on the nursing home industry and the assisted living mm-hmm. industry as well. And and certainly home care to a certain extent, but but I think those two places felt it. I don't know. I don't think it's fair to say the most, but I can say from from my perspective as someone that's, you know, around these industries talking to providers, you know, almost daily that they took an incredible hit both in terms of their financial stability, their morale. Um, and it's, I think, easy to forget in the early days, you know, we were seeing um, really grim statistic about death rates of people 65 and older, mm-hmm. particularly those living in congregate settings. But all during that, you had people in those settings, the you know, the workers, the administrators, the managerial staff that showed up and figured it out um, and they pivoted and they, you know, were listening to daily calls with the Department of Health and trying to figure out the most effective methods um, to prevent infection. And we're trying to follow ever-changing public health guidance. And it was an incredibly difficult time for them as it was an incredibly difficult time for the people they were supporting who were quarantined from their friends and families, isolated from the things that, you know, all of us count on to, to give us pleasure and, and peace in our life. They couldn't be together with the people that they loved. So between the stress of the staff, um, you know, possibly being afraid of being infected, but still showing up to work to the really uh, ever-changing public health guidance and trying to stay on top of that and communicate that from, you know, the leaders and organizations down to every direct support professional. I will say during the early parts of the pandemic, particularly if you'll remember when, um, you know, if you were exposed to COVID, you had to quarantine for at least 14 mm-hmm. days. So think about the impact of that. If you are, you know, running a staff, let's say your staff of 20 uh, on a particular floor or unit, that's just a number I picked out of my head, you know, two of those people go down and can't come back to work, even if they don't, even if they feel like they're, they're physically able to, but public health wise, they're not allowed to come into work. You know, so you can just sort of see the stress and the chaos that that kind of a thing, yeah. even though, from a public health perspective, that's absolutely what we needed to do at the time. But that was incredibly stressful and hard on, on and hard on the industry. And then I'll just quick mention, you're absolutely right, that inflation um, and rising prices make it really, really challenging to, to keep pace. And so we did hear and continue to hear that providers really blew through their reserves, both paying staff over time, uh, you know, trying to figure out how to access PPE, protective, personal protective equipment, um, and and continue to try to make it work so yeah. well you know, I think um, go yeah. ahead. I'm sorry didn't mean to interrupt you I apologize just gonna say you know I think the industry from the nursing facilities to our assisted living to our home and community-based services providers I mean as I was in different positions but with the department at that time working with the Department of Health they really worked incredibly hard under really impossible circumstances to kind of hold things together and provide care for people and really did an incredible job pivoting um, despite all those challenges. You're a, a lot closer to the situation than we are, but I will say as, as an observer, um, I, I, I think you're right. I don't think there are, are the, the two factors that were most impacted or the two parts of our society that were impacted the most were healthcare and, and education. And I think it's, I think it's okay to say, you know, that, that healthcare was probably impacted the most by, 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 COVID and, and it's, it's, it, it's good. Thank you for pointing out the fact that, uh, I mean, when you have, uh, disasters like this, there's an opportunity to, for, for some heroes and, and there's a lot of COVID heroes in the, uh, in the healthcare, uh, world. That's for sure. And especially in our long-term care, uh, sector of healthcare. Indeed. You're absolutely. Right. Absolutely.
You're listening to Public Policy This Week on KYMN Radio, AM 1080 and FM 95.1, broadcasting from beautiful downtown Northfield, Minnesota. I'm Rich Larson. My co-host this morning is Nathan Leaf, and we're talking with Assistant Commissioner for Aging and Disability Services with the Minnesota Department of Human Services, Natasha Mers. One of the things we hear over and over again from not just long-term care, but most healthcare systems is what is characterized as inadequate reimbursement rates through Medicare and Medicaid. What has the state done, if anything, to ease that situation? Yeah, that's that's a great question. So before I, I go into that, let me talk a little bit about rates versus wages, because I think that will help um, make the rest of what I'm saying maybe hopefully a little bit more clear. So when we're talking about services that are funded by Medicaid, um, and that would include home and community-based services, personal care assistance, you know, things that, that we've been talking about um, so far, all those services, the, the rate that a provider is reimbursed for is set by, it's sort of established by the Department of Human Services as the state Medicaid agency, but it has to be approved and authorized by the legislature. So the department on its own can't raise, uh, can't raise rates. We need the legislature to sign off on that because it costs money uh, in our overall state budget and forecast. So we get, for Medicaid services in general, we get federal, we get about half of the money from the feds and about half of it is from the, the state general fund. So, um, so again, the department is the, is the agency that, that the federal government has designated as the one that kind of sets the rate, sets the standards for the services, um, and, and the overall service design, but the permission to actually spend the money and how much money is a legislative decision. So the department would, for example, go in with a proposal to raise rates by a certain percentage in a certain program, and the legislature would have to, you know, say yes or no on that based on their spending priorities and the fiscal analysis. And I should say... When we talk about DHS coming in, I'm talking about what's in the governor's budget, of course, as, right. a st- as an executive agency, our legislative priorities are the governor's legislative priorities. So, um, so that's how rates are set. And then within that rate, the employers of the, of the direct support professionals and other workers, so the provider agencies, actually pay the wages. And then they're included in the rate is sort of assumptions about how much money uh, or what the, the, how much money an employer needs to receive in order to pay competitive wages and benefits, as well as the other, other types of costs to, to operate that business that might be built into that rate. So within that rate, providers have a little bit of sometimes wiggle room to be able to raise rates a little bit within, raise wages within the current rate, but often the kind of the ceiling or the difference between the rate and the overall benefit package needed to pay for that worker that workers' wages is is really really thin compared to the overall rate. Um, so that's where sometimes, you know, I mentioned earlier that it's challenging to raise wages for this industry at the same pace or rate as um, as the private market because they don't have as much flexibility on raising on on the rates. They can't they can't raise their own rates, I suppose, um, or generate more revenue without legislative authorization. So. How that relates to what we, we have done in the department and, and through the governor's office is really trying to focus on rate increases for services that will help people stay in their homes and their communities. So um, 2023 legislative session, we saw historic investments in our personal care assistance program, really trying to make sure that personal care assistance agencies could pay personal care assistance more equivalent to the wavered services that that provide similar services under different programs. So, you know, we can talk program by program if you want. That may not be the most interesting thing to your readers or to your (laughs) listeners. But really the fundamental thing that we do is try to have rate increases in the services and programs that provide the best uh, return on investment. So we know that people prefer to stay in their homes when that's possible for them. And it tends to be cheaper. It's not cheaper for every person every time, but over the arc of kind of the number of people that use services and supports in Minnesota and other states, it's generally cheaper for someone to be in their home um, than it is for them to be in a institutional or a congregate, a congregate say, setting. So there's really good public policy reasons to, to really emphasize um, increasing rates in home and community-based services, and that really has been a focus um, of, of where we've been asking the legislature to invest. 
So there's kind of rate increases, you know, in general, based on analyses of what we think it costs to, to actually deliver that service. One of the things that we're really working towards and building is a, a cost reporting system for providers so that we're not, uh, you know, we make assumptions on rates based on federal data right now, and we really want to understand where, if rates are inadequate, what components of the rate are inadequate, and, and how much more would it take to resolve that. So trying to really use a data-based approach um, through getting provider cost reports. And so that is an increasing um, area of focus for that. We're building out cost reporting across many of our long-term services and support programs so that when we go to the legislature and ask for, for investment, we can say, this is, this is where the investment's needed. This is why that investment's needed. Um, I'll say also that our rates have to be approved by the federal government, by the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, because they're basically kicking in half of the value of the services. And so they, re- they have rules and requirements, too, about the states have to be able to justify their rate methodologies. So that maybe isn't, like I said, as, as interesting, but it is a big component of our work is trying to make sure that we, ma- we maintain compliance with federal governments, so that we continue to maximize the amount of federal money coming in to Minnesota to pay for services. Well, complicated is hardly ever super interesting, but it, I mean, it, it is about <laughs> as complicated as it gets. I mean, there, there's so many different hands in the, uh, in the Medicare and, and Medicaid uh, system yeah. that it's just, it's tough. All right. You may have um, just answered part of this, but I'm going to ask, I'm going to ask this question anyway. Um, when researching these issues more than once, I have seen the word collapse used when discussing the future of long, uh, the long-term care system. As we search for long-term solutions to these issues, what short-term mitigation tactics uh, can be used to essentially prop the system up and keep things running? Yeah, yeah, and I know that it's a really, it's a really scary time for people when they're not able to find direct support professionals, and staffing has been really diff- has been really challenging. I don't think our system is on the verge of collapsing. I think our system is in need of um, really good attention analysis and additional investment, including um, I I really do think a a big piece of that puzzle, big piece of that picture is, is really lifting up and valuing at a societal level the work that direct support professionals do and then compensating them commiserate with that. So it is wages and benefits, but I think it's also this idea that um, this is this is heroic work as well, right? Mm-hmm. Not just the long-term care setting, but people that are working in their communities at their local level, they are doing really important work. The value of, you know, family caregiving or uncompensated caregiving in the United States, whether it's for our elders or for people with disabilities, is very difficult to quantify, but it is astronomical. You know, our system would absolutely collapse if family caregivers uh, stepped away and, and weren't at the table. So you'd asked a little bit about short-term solutions, and I think there's there's a few things. One is is support for family caregivers, so uncompensated caregiving. Um, I wanted to you know say as you as as recognizing the the very fragile and vulnerable place our system is in right now. Uh, Minnesota was recently named the top state by AARP and the Scan Foundation for delivery of long-term care services and supports. So even though it's a really challenging time, we are doing a lot of sort of the right things here in Minnesota, and that doesn't mean we don't have work to do, because of course we do. Our system is never going to be perfect and should be always striving to be continuously improving as times change, conditions change. But I really wanted to point that out because I was just at a conference yesterday with other states um, in that top tier and really talking about learning from other states about their innovative practices and what they've done and what Minnesota has done. So there are reasons to be hopeful. Um, So one of the reasons Minnesota was rated the top state in in the nation for long-term services and supports, a big part of that score was the the current support we have for family caregiving across our system. Um, So, and I think we have a lot more work to do in that area, but just because we got a good score in that area doesn't mean we don't need to really think about new ways to support families, particularly families that are working in intergenerational settings, um, and how can we how can we adjust our system so that families aren't taking such a financial hit when people maybe have to take extended stays or extended time off to take care of their family? I think that's a key, a really key component. How do we provide that better support um, as in the private employment market and other parts of the, you know, other tax and financial incentives? 
I'll say another good option that's kind of a, a hybrid between uncompensated or unpaid family caregiving and a uh, you know, formal paid service is what we refer to as self-directed options. So a self-directed option is a way to deliver service that a person can choose in certain programs like the PCA program or the waiver program um, where the person that needs the support and services is acting as the employer of their their workers so the person that the person or their legal representative that's needs the support gets a a budget and usually an annual budget and they get to build the plan for how they want to spend that money and who they want to pay and how much they want to pay that person there are of course other there are some requirements in terms of working with a financial management entity to perform those employer functions correctly but that really provides a lot of flex flexibility for people to pay um in some cases, their spouses or parents of minor of minor children to provide services and supports under the Medicaid program. So we also think that that helps people, you know, keep in relationship with their community so they could hire, again, family members, extended family, people from their, you know, their faith community, their neighbor, whatever it looks like, as long as it's, as long as they feel comfortable with that person and they train them on their needs. And again, there are certain administrative things that need to happen. But that's a really good way uh, for people maybe to to be able to incentivize their their social networks um, to provide services and support. So often we see that, you know, you might not be able to find a home care worker from an agency, but your cousin might do it for you or your sister might do it if you can offer them a little bit of money. So that, I think, is a really important tool that we want to see those options expanded. Minnesota has been a leader in self-directed options um, for for many decades, and this flexibility became easier to get the feds to approve during COVID, during some of the flexibilities under COVID. So we've seen a lot of other states come and ask us, how have you guys been doing this? What does it look like? Really seeing the importance of self-directed options. So I think that's one big piece. And then the last thing I'll say uh, certainly is how to leverage technology more effectively. We have made big strides, in especially in terms of telemedicine and telehealth. Um, I'm really interested and we've been working with with providers and, and advocates on how can we bring more of that into the long-term care system so that we can, uh, where possible and where safe, reduce reliance on that sort of one-to-one -one, uh, person has to be in the room at all times with that individual. That's not true for everyone. Sometimes people just need someone around or on call checking in on them. So how could we um, think about how to make that service model easier and blend more smoothly with also having maybe someone come into your home three times a week, for example, to, to help you out with things. So I think self-direction, technology, and increasing wages and increasing the um, sort of the profile and the value of direct support professionals are, are all really viable short-term solutions. So just so I'm understanding this program correctly, I uh, technically, if, if say my wife needed uh, uh, the uh, the care and and we set ourselves up in this program. I could hire myself to care for my wife. Is that right? Well, yes. Your wife would be hiring you. Oh, right. She would be okay. the employer. There it is. Yep. The person that's receiving the support or needs the support is the employer. And certainly, you know, you that person can have a legal representative. That's the mm -hmm. employer. So that's why sometimes when we have, you know, if it's a child that needs support, their parent would be the employer. Okay, got it. Well, that's a great segue. Uh, I was hoping we could dive a little bit more into detail on how home-based care works into this in light of what you just said. Can you speak to the WISH Act and what it would do to help the situation? And do you see it as a viable piece of a larger solution? So can you tell me a little bit about the, the WISH Act? I've got some information here, but I uh, confess I'm not fully sure if I'm looking at the right WISH Act. The, the WISH Act is a, it, it, as I understand it, is a, a piece of legislation that's proposed in the federal, uh, the, the United States Senate, uh, that would create a fund, uh, basically, that would just, uh, would fund uh, a lot of what we're talking about here, would, would um, I don't want to say abandon the long-term, or the uh, nursing home model, but it would uh, uh, help people stay in their homes as, as they need care. Is that the Wish Act that that uh, that you know of, Natasha? Um, no, and I okay. confess, I feel like I I should. Oh, um, I apologize. We don't mean to put you on the spot ever. 
No, no problem. Um, you know, I think any program that is looking at how we can finance long-term care more effectively is a really important thing to do. Um, so as I'm looking kind of at the the private, I'm looking at just scanning a little bit here. Um, one of the things we find particularly with seniors, and in fact, I mentioned this, the conference I was at yesterday, uh, sometimes it's referred to as the, the missing middle for our seniors. So the idea being here that um, when we, in order to access the Medicaid services and programs that we've been talking about throughout this interview, people have to spend their money down to, to poverty levels, essentially, right? Mm -hmm. um, there are provisions that allow a, a spouse to keep more money when one person's in the community, but the reality is that when you're accessing Medicaid, you have to spend most of your money to, in order to qualify, which means what, in, for people to access long-term care, they're having to impoverish themselves, which fundamentally isn't necessarily the public policy outcome that we want to see. We want people that are, you know, have saved money and been responsible and, and have some funds not to have to spend that down just because they need long-term care. Um, so, and that, you know, combines with the fact that long-term care insurance right now is a very difficult product to buy and purchase. It's difficult to underwrite uh, in terms of figuring out what it costs. And so as I'm looking, you know, just in my, my very limited knowledge of the WISH Act, I think, you know, it's similar to some of the things that we've been looking at just in the Minnesota level, which is um, a program that is called Own Your Future, which is studying and looking at how could we think about a public-private partnership to finance long-term care um, for, for seniors and older adults so that they don't have to spend all the way down to Medicaid poverty to access that. And so, you know, it is complicated in the sense of trying to figure out from an insurance and an actuarial perspective, how do you finance that? What does it look like? You know, public-private partnerships in the Medicaid space are, are pretty new. It's not super common. Um, but I will say that I think there that's a pretty trying to figure that out, whether that happens at a state or a national level is a really important component of mm -hmm. it because we really, again, don't want people to have to, you know, abolish any wealth that they could pass on to their family just to access long-term care. And you know that long-term care is incredibly expensive um, to pay for privately. Uh, and yes. so you really do see the folks kind of with middle income that, um, are, are feeling that the most in terms of that. So I think anything we could do um, publicly or privately or, you know, to create that, that financing option would be, is, is a very important thing to consider doing. And as I said, we're exploring that with a program called Own Your Future, and we could definitely get you some more information on that if, you're, if your readers are interested. Can, can, can you talk a little bit about Own Your Future? Yeah, so um, the idea behind Own Your Future, as I said before, it's an initiative that we've been, we've had for a long time in the department and the whole, you know, the long-term care insurance industry has sort of changed under our feet as we've tried to understand it. But the goal, the goal of the, the program would be to make recommendations to the legislature about some type of a public-private combination insurance, long-term care insurance product for Minnesotans. Um, often what happens is uh, it's very difficult if people have really extended expensive end-of-life care, that can be difficult to sort of finance and build into a private insurance uh, product. And so we think about, you know, could we have a more affordable insurance, this is an example, so a more affordable long private insurance product that could supplement Medicare, because Medicare won't pay for long-term care, but you know, say you access Medicare benefits, then you maybe have this private long-term care insurance option, and then at some point, if that gets too expensive, that Medicaid can come in and somehow back or underwrite that private policy to allow overall costs to the consumer to actually be affordable. Because right now, the cost of private long-term care insurance is unaffordable for most people, uh, particularly if they don't get it when they're you know 25 and healthy, mm -hmm. which most 25-year-olds aren't thinking about that. No. Um, so many don't think yeah. about that. Well, this is sort of the uh, the million dollar question, and and, and you've been, uh, I think, speaking to this in some very specific areas. But um, because of improved technology and a better awareness of of how to live a healthy lifestyle, the United States has an aging population. Um, I realize asking this question, Natasha, is it's a combination of asking you to both uh, predict the future and uh, uh, offer a solution uh, to a problem as old as time. But um, what do we do when we have more older adults in need of care than we have ever had before? 
Uh, I had Northfield uh, Hospital and Clinics uh, President and CEO Steve Underdahl uh, on my uh, morning show with me yesterday. And he told me that he thought that this is a generational uh, problem that will likely require generational solutions. What are your thoughts on, on, on the, the grand issue here? Yeah, thanks for that question. It's, it's really important. It's one I'm passionate about. So, you know, these demographic shifts in our society aren't, aren't new. We've known about them for a long time. Um, I, from my perspective, the most important thing is that we stop seeing this as an inherently negative problem, right? The idea that we're getting older, all of us are needing more supports, isn't actually a bad thing. I think sometimes it's framed as everyone is going to, you know, as our population ages, people are getting, you know, we're going to have less and less and less. And I really challenge us to think about how do we make sure that we have services and supports available for people, but how do we look at what the benefit is to, to our communities and society to find different ways to include seniors and elders to really be those, those really vital members that are teaching us and passing along wisdom and helping us um, prepare for the future. So I think one is, is a little bit of a thinking shift. I mean, I don't want to be unrealistic about the problem because certainly we know that there aren't enough as many people that are able and physically able to do the work as we, we need based on our old system. But I think we need to think about how do we create a new system? How do we refocus supports for family caregivers, intergenerational options for living and being in community? Um, I would want to point out um, one of the things that we've done in Minnesota to, to help us prepare and think about it and be thoughtful about it is um, we have a governor-appointed council called Age-Friendly Minnesota, which is a uh, which is a state, a national effort that a lot of other states have engaged in that is really part of creating a multi-sector plan on aging. So sometimes people may think about long-term care just in the context of human services, you know, the things that we've been talking about, but really um, healthy aging and information is, is, is a function of all parts of, you know, society and our system from the commerce department to the transportation department to our local cities, counties, municipalities that we all really need to think about what kind of structural changes to our communities, what kind of changes to the way we deliver services and supports are necessary to take full advantage of, of, of the aging of our population? How do we maximize that benefit and really think about that? So I think, I think it is generational, but I don't necessarily think that framing it as a problem is going to bring us to the solutions that we really need. You bring up age-friendly Minnesota. Here in Northfield, we have a uh, a very active uh, age-friendly uh, uh, board, age-friendly Northfield, uh, and they have become, frankly, a a, a very effective uh, lobbying group uh, within yeah. within the city. And uh, that that age-friendly program, which was put together, I believe, by the World Health Organization and AARP, if if I'm if I'm yep. right, that's um. That's a that's a program that could actually make some differences, isn't it? Absolutely. It absolutely is. And we've seen a lot. We've seen really good progress, even as, you know, I think you pointed out correctly that some cities and municipalities uh, took on the age friendly challenge earlier than the state of Minnesota did. And so we have pockets like Northfield that have really helped us figure out how to scale this up at a state level and really, you know, try to create um, good alignment between uh, municipalities, cities, communities, and state agency efforts. Um, so I thank you for, for sharing that about Northfield. Um, I really do believe it can make a huge difference because I think we can't, we can't look at human beings in isolation or as a function of one particular service or program, right? So we don't assume that all people that are 65 and older are going to go into a nursing home. We assume some of them are for short-term care and possibly long-term care later in their life. But we have to look at them as individual people that need and want support in their community that might look different depending on where they live. And so thinking about how do we create the structures and the collaboration structures to be able to think about a, a whole community and how easy or hard is it to, to age well in this community, to access primary care, to access early screenings for dementia, um, to have senior nutrition programs when that's appropriate, to have community spaces that are accessible so people can gather and be together, um, transportation systems that function and work, support for caregivers, 
Um, so all of those things can kind of live and be housed under these age-friendly collaborations. And so that happens at the, at, again, is at the city level, like you talked about. But what I appreciate about age-friendly MN is we have leaders from across long-term care, but we also have leaders from other state agencies and important advocacy communities all coming together really with a passion for lifting up the voice of seniors in our communities and elders and figuring out how we can age well in place as a society and really continue to grow and thrive. And I do think that that group, along with many other important parts of our system, including our uh, providers of services through the Older Americans Act, are going to be the key to being successful and meeting all the significant challenges that we do have ahead of us. Speaking of technology and uh, generational solutions, there's a lot of concern across the labor market. There has been, of course, that automation is going to displace a lot of labor, but isn't there a possibility, possibility there in the long-term care area where that actually fills a need and f- fills a gap if we've got a labor shortage there? I think so. Yeah. I mean, I don't, I I absolutely think it does. I don't think it does everything. I don't think it's, it's the only solution, but I think it is absolutely a piece of the puzzle. Um, So we've seen, you know, even in the last 10 years, really significant advancements in technology that have benefited people with disabilities and older adults in the sense of, you know, it used to be really hard and expensive to buy a piece of adaptive equipment to help you do a particular thing. So if you don't communicate with words and you need you know, a, a screen reader or you need some type of a adaptive device to, to communicate, that used to be very expensive and difficult. And now it's an app that's available for all of us on our phones, right? So there's things like that. Um, and then we've seen increasing quality of things like medication dispensers, um, monitoring technology, although that, you know, you have to be careful with that. It has to be with the consent of the person being monitored and under certain circumstances. So I think um, for some of these you know, particular functions that technology plays a role. And I think where we have room to grow and develop and really listen to people that use services is in that area of, you know, I might just need a little bit of help here and there. And because we can't schedule that help, it can be very hard not to have someone in your home at any given time. So I think we're also interested in understanding how can we create more maybe on-demand options? What would that look like in terms of, you know, having apps that do things like that? or technology systems that allow people to be really independent but have be connected to someone in case something goes wrong. So someone has a fall and that's immediately notified to a provider or a family member, for example. Um, so I think there are places that we can reduce reliance on direct human assistance through the use of technology, uh, but I, I don't think it's the only, you know, like it's going to solve all our problems. But I think it has to be a very careful and thoughtful part of the solution um, in, order to, in order to be effective. Commissioner, as we wrap this show up today, we always like to give our guests the last word. Is there something we should have discussed this morning that was missed? I don't think missed, and I just really appreciate the opportunity to, you know, share my my thoughts and you're lifting up and elevating this issue. I would just say that I think the last thought is that there is, while we have very significant challenges that we, we've talked through a little bit, the complexity of our system, the shortage of workers, we also have incredible opportunities to come together as a state and as communities to really advance quality of care and quality of services with a focus on um, community integration. So when we really focus on how do we include people that need support in our communities, whether there are elders that may have some early onset dementia or there's someone that needs a lot of physical assistance to get to, to navigate the day, that when we find better ways and more effective ways to include them and hear their voice and lift them up as valued members of our community, that's how we're all going to thrive together. And so any policy and anything we can do from a funding or a legislative perspective or a program perspective that supports that and brings people together um, in community, that is going to be our North Star. Well, I really just wanted to take a little time and, and, and thank you for uh, uh, be, being a part of this show. Um, frankly, this conversation has made, has made me feel a little bit better about something that I've, I, I won't say I've been losing sleep over this, but I, I, I have been, uh, everything I've been hearing and reading has, has, has scared me. And, and, and thank you for, uh, uh, for this conversation because I actually do, I feel a little bit better about the whole situation now. 
So uh, Assistant Commissioner Natasha Mers, thank you uh, for spending some time with us this morning here uh, on Public Policy This Week. And that will conclude this edition of Public Policy This Week. We're on KYMN Radio, AM 1080 and FM 95.1 each Friday morning from 10 to 11 a.m. Next Friday's edition of Public Policy This Week, please join myself and Joe Moravchik. Uh, we'll have a follow-up discussion on a show we did about a year ago discussing name, image, and likeness issues within the NCAA. Thank you for joining us today for Public Policy This Week. Have a fantastic Friday afternoon and a superb weekend. You've been listening to Public Policy This Week. Tune in every Friday morning at 10 a.m. for more conversation with policy experts. Remember, this show can be found on your favorite podcast platform or stream it from kymnradio.net.